0: With the search of the creep's home having come to a screeching halt due to the inclement weather, this has given the media more than ample time to scour the earth for every conceivable Gacy story that they can uncover. We've heard from the wife of Tony Gack who had a close encounter with Gacy back in the early 70s and who didn't come to know that he was much closer to a potentially deadly situation than he would have ever thought until the day that Gacy was arrested. There are so many of these living victims out there, many of whom would become witnesses for the state at trial, because these are the victims that could fill in the gaps and who gave a voice to those who were no longer there to speak. They would be the ones to tell the jury exactly what horrors that Gacy's victims had to endure before the thief of lives extinguished their flames. Now, we continually to get contacted by listeners that have their own Gacy tales of terror but very few are as harrowing as the stories of near-death encounters with the creep as Anthony Antonucci's are. See, he wasn't a kid that Gacy either enticed or snatched up from the street. He was a 16-year-old kid that worked for Gacy with PDM, not merely for days, but for months. And unlike many of Gacy's young employees, he lived to tell the tale. And that is exactly what he's going to do. He's going to tell us about his experiences with the deranged contractor. What made him different than Johnny Butkovich and Gregory Godzik? Was he somebody that Gacy valued, like David Cram and Michael Rossi? Or was it something else? Let's dive in and see what Tony has to say about it.
1: Hello, I'm Tony Antonucci. I am uh, 62 years old, but a long time ago, uh, as a teenager, I... uh, had a part-time job working for John Wayne Gacy. I kind of, uh, got to know John because he was a contractor that, uh, apparently my parents knew and he helped work on remodeling our apartment. And I was helping him out and he kind of noticed that I had knew my way around a hammer and, uh, <clears throat> offered me a, uh, a, a job, a summer job. This is right in the end of the school year, maybe in May or June. So, uh, a part-time, part-time job or a full-time job for the summer, but part-time at other times, uh, seemed pretty good to me. I was about, uh, about 16 years old and I had a, uh, a car and a girlfriend and those are both expensive things. So making some money was, uh, was definitely on my on my plate. I did have a uh, uh, incident with John Gacy, and this is uh, still occurring in the the summer of of '75. And I want to, uh, if memory serves me correctly, it was in the July time frame. And so John, uh, he wasn't overly concerned with job safety, but he did always say, you know, don't wear gym shoes. And of course, being, a, a teenager, I was, uh, we were doing some demolition work and I was wearing gym shoes. So, um, sure enough, I, I stepped on a board that had a, a nail sticking out of it and it went right through my, my shoe and, and punctured my skin with, you know, a rusty nail. So it was right at the end of the day anyway. And, and, uh, John um, took me, I think we went to some kind of place where you could get a tetanus shot. So he, uh, he took me to get a, a tetanus shot and then dropped me off at home. Uh, my parents were not, were not home. They were uh, uh, on vacation. They were taking a driving vacation. And I was 16 years old and had my own car and I had a job. So uh, I uh, I elected to not go on the vacation, and uh, so I uh, I was at my we lived in an apartment at the time, and and I was staying there by myself, which was uh, very good because you know I I kind of had my freedom, had a little uh, alone time with my girlfriend, and uh, and that. So <clears> the <throat> day when that I got my the nail through my foot was uh, was a Friday, so that was a. Uh, kind of good too, because, you know, I mean, it, it, hurt to, to step on it. So I was just, uh, just at home and it was probably about, I don't know, nine thirty or 10 o'clock and there's a knock on my door and it's John Gacy. And he came under the, uh, the cover story of saying, you know, he just wanted to, he was in the neighborhood and he wanted to check on how I was doing and, uh, you know, the, you know, cause I got the, the puncture in my foot and he also said he had been in at a party, uh, in the area. All of this was probably fiction, but, um, so he came in and he said, I have, uh, he goes, you know, I've got, uh, you know, some wine and stuff from this party I was at, you know, not that a party would really be over at 10 o'clock at night, but. So we uh, we went ahead and did that, and um, and he knew I was on the the high school wrestling team. So he, he did this at other times, but in this particular case, so we're we're in the living room of my apartment, and he's like, you know, come on, you wrestler guy. He kind of you know does the little you know taunting me a little bit to to egg me into kind of wrestling with him. So uh, I did that. I did that. I started wrestling with him, and um all of a sudden on one of my wrists I, he gets a handcuff and it wasn't as usual or uh what we learned later is it wasn't show show you a trick he put this on without you know I didn't even know he had handcuffs with him or anything and he got it on my left wrist and uh so of course my natural reaction then was to completely flail my right arm around so that he couldn't get a hold of it and uh I was doing a pretty good job at that, but eventually he got a hold of my, my right arm and he put the, uh, and I was struggling, um, and I was pretty, pretty strong, um, did a lot of weightlifting, but he did manage to get the cuff on right wrist, but it wasn't on super tight. So, and then he, uh, uh, because I'm, my hands are handcuffed behind me, you know, he just kind of knocked my legs out from underneath me and which brought me to the floor. And I was laying on my back with my hands handcuffed underneath me, which is not comfortable, I might add. And, uh, and then he left the room. So I noticed that, um, and again, I thought this was just uh, uh, some kind of test. And a matter of fact, John called, uh, sometimes he would try to scare people. He would say, you know, he'd call it mind-fucking. He goes, he would try to scare someone um, you know, to a limit to almost cause them to crack. So I, I'm like thinking to myself that maybe this is John trying to quote mind fuck me. So um, I noticed that if I pull really hard on my right hand, I could probably pull it through the cuff. And in doing so, I scraped all the skin off my knuckles. My hand was bleeding, but... I kept my hand underneath me so that when he walked back in the room, he didn't know that I got out of the cuffs because I was still laying on the floor, laying on my back, my hands behind me, underneath me, uh, behind my back. And he he came over to my side, and I hit him with a beautiful double leg takedown and dropped him right to the floor. And in wrestling, one of the things that we always used to say is, where the head goes, the body goes. So he landed uh, face down on the on the carpeting, and I kept my forearm and all of my weight uh, on the back of his neck, which is just pushing his face into the into the carpeting. But you know, when you're in that position with someone holding your you know a, a lot of weight on your neck, there's no way you can get up. So I uh, I kept him in that position and I reached in his pocket and I got the key to the handcuffs. And I, I, um, uh, uh, well, before I did that, I got the cuff I got out of on him <clears throat> and I reached in his pocket and got the key and uncuffed my, my, uh, uh, left wrist, which was still cuffed. And I, sure enough, I cuffed both of his hands behind his back, although he was laying on his, uh, on his stomach, on his front. And, uh, he was pretty, pretty freaked out by that. As a matter of fact, he said, uh, a quote, which I'll never forget. And the exact quote is he goes, you're the only one that not only got out of the handcuffs, you got them on me. And I didn't know what that meant. I thought, you know, well, he's given this test or tried to mind fuck other people. And, you know, and I kind of, part of my, uh, Thing was i reversed this on him and let me confess that none of this is because i was um a super a genius or whatever i was 100 percent lucky and you know thank god and everything because i didn't have that fear for my life my entire motivation for doing all this was the you know john's giving me this test and trying to mind fuck me i'm like how can i mind fuck him <laughs> so um little, little did I know that I was literally struggling for for my life. So, uh, I let him stay handcuffed on the floor for, for quite a while. I want to say it was, you know, probably on the order of at least 15, 20 minutes. And I made him promise that if I uncuffed him, uh, without, you know, any kind of, uh, uh, doing anything, he would just leap. So, uh, He promised that he would do that, and I handcuffed him, and sure enough, he did just leave.
0: Wow. Tony Antonucci. He was one brave kid, and he brings up a very interesting point about Gacy that has flown under the radar, which is that he was seen as an authority figure by a majority of these young men, whether it be that he was their boss and single-handedly controlled their destiny as far as the job, or whether it be because Gacy was playing cop. Either way, it begins to explain, short of Gacy knocking his victim out with chloroform and subduing them with handcuffs, how the portly, out-of-shape contractor with a heart condition was able to overpower these strapping young men. And the answer is trust. As misguided as it may seem in retrospect, those were different times. Respect your elders was a real thing. The kids that worked for him simply put, trusted him and respected his authority. And if they didn't, a majority of them ended up dead and buried under his house or thrown in a river. If they thought he was a cop, well, back then, cops were viewed as good guys, people that you could put your faith and trust in because, well, that was their job to serve and protect. We've learned that that wasn't really the case back then, but it is what children were told by their parents. If you're in trouble, find a policeman. They will help you. Little did they know, with respect to Gacy, that those little life lessons were driving their children into the arms of a monster. Yeah, the creep was the worst of the worst. He used all the tricks in the book to cast his net over his unsuspecting victims. Anthony Antonucci, well, he was the exception to the rule, as he took what Gacy said at face value. Oh, well, I was just testing you, kid, and you passed. Tony, well, he just thought, hmm, This fucking guy really likes tests. And you know what? I'm going to pass them all. Well done, Tony. You were one of the lucky ones. Welcome to Defense Diaries. I'm your host, Bob Mata, and this is episode 24.
2: An Object
0: in Motion. We left off with Gacy standing in front of Judge Fitzgerald, flanked by Amaranti on his right and Bill Kunkel for the state on his left, being informed that he was no longer just being charged with the murder and abduction of Rob Peace. Now, I told you last episode, this part of the process is called the arraignment. And what happens after the judge informs the defendant of what he or she has been charged with, it is then time for the defendant to enter a plea of guilty or not guilty. I've been practicing criminal law for 20 plus years, and I've had clients that have had mountains and mountains of evidence that law enforcement has gathered that would seem to be more than enough to prove my client's guilt. Yet, in all of those years, and despite what evidence the state purportedly has against my client, I have never had a client plead guilty to what they had been charged with at their arraignment. Never. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't happen, because it does. It's just very, very rare. And that's because there's no benefit to it. Just so you have a better understanding of the defense attorney-defendant relationship in terms of who gets to decide what, the defendant has three unequivocal things that they must decide for themselves. And those are whether to plead guilty or not guilty, whether they want a bench or a jury trial. Remember, a bench trial being where the judge is the sole trier of fact. And finally, whether or not they will testify at trial. Now, that doesn't mean that the attorney doesn't advise the defendant of what they think is the best course of action, because any good attorney will. But at the end of the day, those three decisions are the defendant's decisions to make, and their decision alone. So when we look back at what Gacy has been doing in terms of giving up information in statement after statement to the cops, logic would seem to dictate that the creep might just intend on stepping up and taking responsibility for his actions by pleading guilty, thereby sparing the victim's families of the trauma of having to come into court and giving proof of life testimony about their sons. We'll get to that, I promise. Saving the state and his lawyers all the time and work that goes into preparing their cases for trial, and giving the court and John and Jane Q. taxpayer a break by not forcing a lengthy and costly trial for what appears on its face to be a foregone conclusion. So let's see what the creep does.
2: All right, well, I was charged with when I was brought back, but I don't recall it. I don't even remember... Being there, I thought i I come out of the arraignment and then I was put in a car and brought over here. But evidently that was on the next day. I don't remember that. I don't remember how I even actually got over here. So you're saying was so that for that entire few-day, couple-of-day period, you were in sort of a... How would you describe it? You describe it to me. I and mean, what senses did you have? What uh, I think the first time i have seen Sam, I think Sam came over on a Sunday or on a Monday. And I was back in the in the res- full restraint. I know I sat up and I talked to Sam and I talked to <coughs> Leroy Stevens, and I know I signed some papers, but I don't remember. Because I even had to ask Sam later on what the hell did I sign? You know, I don't remember any of it. Then it finally started to clear. I think it was close to almost New Year's before I started <coughs> coming coming back to. You know, where I re- realized about three days before New Year's is when I started to realize what the hell was going on. I don't even remember Christmas, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day. I don't remember any of it. That's all the way up to the, what, the 20, uh, Christmas Day, the 25th. Were you going to kill yourself? I don't know. Remember what came out of trial about that? They claim I tried to kill myself. Yeah. Not with oh. this bullshit here. Remember when you were going to go to the cemetery? Were you really going to say goodbye to your father that day? No, I have been out to the cemetery on occasions before. As I told you, I've always ha- had the, the ill feeling that did, I hurt my that I hurt my dad because I wasn't here when he died. I was in an institution uh-huh. when my dad died.
0: I've got to make a bit of an editorial note here. Anything that I read regarding what happened during this court date will come directly from the court transcripts, starting with Amaranti's entry of his client's plea. Now, I'm unsure of the law as it pertains to other states, but in Illinois, the defense attorney enters the plea or pleas on behalf of their client, which is exactly what happens here. And this occurs directly after the court arraigns Gacy or advises him of the charges. So this is what Amaranti says. Thank you, Your Honor. Judge, in regard to the indictments, I have entered not guilty pleas on behalf of my client. However, at this time, I would say I have entered the pleas of not guilty with the hopes of not prejudicing my motions, those motions being the motions to dismiss the indictments. So, Your Honor, on December 29th, in front of Judge White and Disblains, I filed a motion to dismiss the complaint against my client with the number 7838080 01, which was a murder complaint, the alleged victim being that of Robert Peast. I filed a motion to dismiss the complaint. At this time, I'm asking leave of court to amend that motion to dismiss the complaint since an amended number 79C69 has superseded that complaint. I would ask to amend that motion on its face to a motion to dismiss the indictment. So, Gacy pleads not guilty to all counts, which is no surprise, and we will get into why that is shortly. Next, Amaranti moves directly into the filing of more motions. It was a very active day in terms of the defense filing motions, which, frankly, are expected to be filed in a case of this type. And there are a few surprises in there as well. So Amaranti continues on with his full frontal attack. Your Honor, additionally, I would have a motion to quash all the indictments based on the fact, in particular, indictment number 79C69. We intended to come to court today, pursuant to Judge White's order on the 29th, to have a preliminary hearing on a complaint that was filed. Subsequent to that time, Your Honor, without notice to the defendant's counsel, without notice to the defendant, Mr. Gacy was indicted in seven indictments. I believe that he has the right to a preliminary hearing. I think that that right has been consciously avoided by the state by proceeding by way of the grand jury. And on those grounds, I would be entering a motion tendering originals and copies of the court to quash all indictments. So, anytime that a lawyer wants to file a motion in a criminal case, the lawyers seek leave of court from the judge. Think of the judge as a referee, there to keep things on equal footing for both parties and the gatekeeper of what comes into evidence. Amaranti continues, Your Honor, additionally, I have an oral motion to quash all of the indictments, and I'm asking leave of court to put that motion in writing and to file briefs. Basically, the motion is to dismiss all the indictments based not only on the pre-trial publicity, but pre-indictment publicity, Judge. I think nowhere in the annals of the criminal justice system in this country, or any country for that matter, has there been so much pre-indictment, pre-criminal process, and pre-critical stage publicity. I think Your Honor realizes that with the sophisticated modes of the news media, mini-cams, live from the scene reporting, and so forth, That prejudicial publicity, which may or may not be true, which may or may not be used at trial, and which may or may not be admissible in a grand jury proceeding, all of these matters being put before a grand jury for the purpose of indicting a person, none of us in this room, especially my client, or I, or Mr. Mata, will ever know the amount of taint that was placed on the grand jurors because of the nature of the grand jury proceeding, as it's conducted in secret." It is our argument that the grand jury has to have been tainted. There was no way that that grand jury could not have been tainted. They could not have not known of or heard the pretrial publicity. The news literally hits millions of people throughout the state, throughout the country. And for that reason, judge, we are asking to dismiss the indictment based on pre-indictment publicity because it has tainted the minds of the grand jurors. Okay. So the court grants Amaranti leave to file the motions after hearing a bit about them, but won't let him do it orally. Instead, he wants it in writing, and he's going to give the state the opportunity to reply, which is completely standard in motion practice. Yet Amaranti's not done. He moves on to a new subject. Your Honor, additionally, I would orally object, and I have already done so in displains on December 29th, to this proceeding this entire proceeding from here on in, I object to any of it being heard and taking place at 26th Street. The case properly belonged in the third district and that is Des The case was commenced there and proper forum is over there. Our argument is that there exists no compelling judicial reason for transferring the matter. The only reason which we have been given is that they're saying it was for security purposes. We didn't ask for a transfer. We never asked for a change of venue or Forum Nonconvenience, which is Latin for Inconvenient Forum. On the 29th, Your Honor, we objected to the case being transferred. So therefore, Your Honor, we object to the entire proceeding taking place here at 26th Street. Now, this is an interesting argument, a failing one, because there is no way in hell that any judge at 26th and Cal is transferring this back to Little Old Displains. That ship has sailed. The motive behind this was to get it back to Desplaine so that they are not facing Kunkel and the rest of the 26th Street crew. Remember, think minor and major leagues when comparing the two. Politically speaking, there is no way that this concept would even be entertained. Now, Amaranti goes on regarding an order that was entered on December 29th by White for a psychiatric exam of Gacy. The defense is seeking their own doctor to do the initial exam, as opposed to one of the state doctors. And he asks for it to be done in camera, which means back in the judge's chambers, because the defense does not want the press knowing who the doctors are at this juncture. The court in response advises Amaranti that it is aware that a motion for behavior clinic motion was already filed on December 29th. Now, this is an entirely different examination and is performed by the state's doctors the purpose being either to determine if the defendant is competent or mentally fit to stand trial and or to evaluate if the defendant is sane at the time the alleged crimes occurred. The judge goes on to let Amaranti know that he had received a letter from a Dr. Reifman of the clinic stating that they were notified by the court clerk that an order for an examination had been entered, but they never got a copy of that order. Oops. So the examination never took place nor was it scheduled. Yikes. Not sure if this was the defense's responsibility to get the motion over to the clinic or the clerk's, but somebody screwed up. Because in a situation like this, you want the defendant evaluated as close to the arrest as possible so that their state of mind is as close to what it was during the time that the alleged crime was committed. Any time that passes, that changes. So Amaranti confirms that it is the defense's desire to have both the fitness and sanity evaluations done. And then he proceeds to point the finger at the clerk, and more importantly, the state, for the order not being filed, with the state's goal being that of delaying the examinations because time is their friend. The longer the creep is in custody, the more his mental state will change, as the mind will go into self-preservation mode as circumstances have changed dramatically that and medication the court proceeds to enter the order for both examinations Amaranti then raises the issue of another motion that was filed on the 29th which was a motion for the defense to have a person stationed over gacy's house to monitor the air quote search now kunkel hasn't objected to any of the other motions being filed but this one he did object to believing that the defense was just attempting to get a jump on the discovery process. Amarante argues that that motion was granted over the state's objection on the 29th. Now, in a typical criminal case, the defendant is brought before the judge about every 30 days so that the judge can check in on the progress of the case, make sure that the discovery is getting tendered, motion work is progressing, etc., etc. So the defense at this juncture is going to flood the court with as many motions as they can because it will be a hot minute before they are in court again. Now, Amaranti then references petitions which were filed and served on the state for rules to show cause. Against the sheriff of Cook County, basically everybody that works for them has been assigned to the Gacy case, and Dr. Stein. He briefs the judge on the crux of the motion, which is that both the cops and Stein have violated the gag order massively, which has resulted in prejudicing the public against Gacy which may seem laughable in this case, but it really does matter because the public does form opinions which are nearly impossible to change once they are formed because, well, human nature. Typically, Kunkel's office would represent the Sheriff and Stein in the proceedings on the rule to show cause. But here, because it's so intertwined with the state and further, it's implied that the state has had a hand in the violation of the gag order, Kunkel bows out because of a potential conflict of interest. So a private attorney will be handling those matters on behalf of the state employees. Okay, so there has been a ton of shit that just happened so far on Casey's first date in court at 26 and Cal. As you just heard, my father was a busy guy, preparing tons of motions to be filed on behalf of the creep. Everything that we will present to you with regards to any court proceedings will be coming straight from the horse's mouth, aka the transcripts. Back to court on January 10th. So if you're thinking, Bob, I just heard you saying many words, but them's just words. What the hell does it all mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because it's your favorite time, and it's my favorite time. It's Defense Motion's 101 time.
2: 101 time!
0: Okay, so we just went through what probably amounted to 30 minutes of actual court time. And during that 30 minutes, Amaranti either filed or referenced already filed motions by the defense team. Remember, it is these pretrial motions that constitute the war in any criminal case. It's where the rules are set, where what is admissible and what is not is determined, where it's decided if the cops were on the up and up during the investigation or whether they violated constitutional protections. And the trial, well, that's the final bloody battle. Think of it like this, the discovery and motion phase typically takes between one and two years to get through. And the trial, well, a week, 10 days, a month, maybe a little bit longer in extraordinary circumstances. The motion work is the guts of the case. So let's start from the top. You should probably already be with me on the motion to dismiss the complaint. Remember, that was a motion that says, hey, you indicted my client on a murder charge, But you don't have a body. We don't officially even know that Rob Peast is dead. So how can you charge my client for a crime that we don't know actually happened? It's a pretty compelling argument and is the reason that Kunkel is so hell-bent on the cops finding Rob Peast. Remember, no body, no crime. Most of the time, and I'm talking, there's only a handful of bodiless murders that have ever been tried, not only in this country, but worldwide. So Gacy, despite his six confessions, may be in decent shape with regards to that particular motion. That is, until Kunkel metaphorically sucker punches Amarante right in the throat by filing an additional six indictments for murder without giving any notice to Gacy or his lawyers. Guess what? They have all the bodies and the identifications of those victims, thanks in large part to the creep himself. Now, Amaranti amended the motions right then and there in court to include the six new indictments. But the end result of that particular motion, as you and I both know, is that it's dead in the water. It will be denied, swatted away like an irritating fly. So then there's the motion to monitor, which is an interesting motion and frankly, a very uncommon motion as defense attorneys aren't allowed to tag along with the cops to observe their investigation. In light of that, What the defense is arguing is that they want to have someone from the defense team over at Gacy's place to see what the hell is going on, because it sounds like they're dismantling the creep's crib brick by brick. The state is arguing that the defense is just trying to get a peek at the evidence that, in theory, will eventually be tendered to them in discovery anyway. Not so, cries the defense. Now, we have heard the creep whining about the state destroying all of his shit, and my father trying to placate him by saying, hey, That is how the state is trying to get you to crack, John, relax. So keep in mind that even when you're defending a sick fuck like Gacy, as his attorney, you need to establish trust with your client. And this motion was filed by his lawyers with that specific intent. Yeah, John, we hear you and we will do something about it. This was the something. This motion, however, is essentially moot, though, as the dig at Gacy's house is done at least until the thaw comes. But by that time, the state will be seeking to tear the whole damn house down. And we'll get there, but just not quite yet. The next motion that Amaranti mentions is the motion to quash the indictments. Now remember, I told you that a defendant can be officially charged either by indictment through a grand jury or by an information by ways of a preliminary hearing. So the essence of this motion is that the defense is saying that because of all the pretrial publicity, that there is no way in hell that they are gonna be able to find a grand jury that wasn't tainted or biased due to what they have been seeing on the news for the last three weeks about Gacy. Therefore, that indictment should be tossed out and the state should be forced to get their information by having to conduct a preliminary hearing, which, if you remember, is like a mini trial where the defense is not only present, but, They also get to cross-examine whatever witnesses the state puts on to try and secure the information. This one might have some legs because frankly, the pretrial publicity has been so outrageous. And it's not just how much publicity there's been, but what information has been leaked and by whom, which has to have been by the only ones who are in a position to know, the cops and the state. The reality is that Gacy is public enemy number one and the odds of winning this type of motion are slim to none. Now, the motion regarding a psychiatric exam is self-explanatory, but it's not just that that the defense is seeking. They also are looking for an evaluation to determine if Gacy is competent or fit to stand trial, and a determination as to whether or not Gacy was sane at the time of the alleged offenses. So the insanity defense card has just been played. Almost immediately, and the defense obviously wants their own doctor, whose identity will not be revealed until it's absolutely necessary to perform the evaluation. The reality in these types of situations is that any state doctor is going to come back saying he's both competent and he's sane. Ultimately, the creep will end up being evaluated by what seemed to be a small town's phone book worth of head doctors, but that's for a little bit later, and we will obviously be digging into that hard and finally there are the rules to show cause now these are incredibly rare for a defense attorney to file in a criminal case because what it is is a petition that is seeking to find that someone is in indirect civil contempt in that they willingly and knowingly violated a court order here the order in question is the gag order or the protective order and the defense team is alleging that just about everyone associated with the state should be held in contempt, especially the sheriff's department and Dr. Stein. Now, Amaranti makes a bit of a circular argument here because he is concerned that the media, who is of course present, will then turn around and report on the rule being filed, about the apparent leaks and the subsequent publicity, which of course defeats the purpose of the rule itself. So Amaranti asks the court to shelve that for the time being, so as not to create a vicious cycle makes sense, but the damage is already done. So there you go. A lot went down in a short period of time. And if your head is spinning a bit, I get it. But the reality is the defense isn't done. No, they filed even more motions on January 10th, all of which we will get to on the next episode of Defense Diaries. As always... Thank you for being dedicated listeners, because without you, I'd just be some old man talking about an old case.
2: Talk to you next time. Okay, we know, it. We know exactly what about it.